We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall, and my witness on The Meaningful Life is Richard Patterson, who's a mindfulness teacher and a spiritual coach. Do you have a critical voice inside, judging, comparing you with others, and telling you to pull your socks up? Do you find it hard to sleep sometimes because you're stressed out and can't switch off? Do you worry about the future and everything that could go wrong? Is it robbing you of joy today? If you answered yes to any of these questions, you've come to the right place, as our topic is overthinking, and in the best tradition of self-development, we have seven steps to stop it. Richard has been teaching meditation for over 20 years and is the author of Kick the Thinking Habit and Awaken the Happy You. In his early 20s, he went off to India and spent most of his 20s and 30s in ashrams. In 2004, on a six-month meditation retreat, he decided to become an ordained monk. Welcome to The Meaningful Life, Richard. Paint me the picture of yourself in your early 20s before you went off to India. Well, I think I kind of figured at a very young age, I didn't really want to go down the career path. I just had a fascination, well, mostly about India, really, for some reason, and just wanted to get there as soon as I could. But I think a large part of it was just trying to avoid having a nine-to-five job. <laughs> I think at 61 years old, I'm still, I'm still there. So instead of running away to join the circus, you ran away to India? Basically, yeah. So how would you describe your thinking habit in those days? Oh, I was very much looking for pleasure, looking for adventure, looking for excitement, and very caught up in the mind. You know, From my perspective now of the mind, I would say I, I was 100% caught up in the mind. And tell me about your religious backgrounds. You come originally from Scotland. What kind of religious education and religious background did you come from? I always consider myself very fortunate to have grown up in an atheist family. So I had a completely clean slate to start off with. You know, I've, I've known quite a few people in the past who've had to kind of scrub clean their childhood beliefs in order just to reach a neutral place to begin. So I always feel quite grateful that, that there was really nothing as a child. Nothing but something missing, or am I jumping to conclusions? Just a very strong, intuitive sense I've always had that there's something deeper to life than you know just going out, um, accumulating wealth, accumulating achievements, uh, these kinds of things. That there's some uh, spiritual purpose. I think I've always, on a deep level, I've always known that. And I guess I didn't see it at the time, but I guess when you know when I went off at twenty to India, that it was to feed that knowingness that I had inside. So, what were your impressions of India when you got there? Oh, I loved it. Yeah, it was like uh, like Narnia, just this kind of magic world of oxes and carts. And you know, I was twenty-one years old, so it was very exciting. And did you go straight to an ashram or did you just travel around? 
I think the first couple of trips, it was mostly traveling. I went to see the Taj Mahal and things like that. And over a long period of time, I mean, over 20 years or so, I just gradually became more and more pulled by the spiritual side of things. I heard of certain spiritual masters who were still alive at the time, and I feel very blessed that I was able to go there and experience that. It was a gradual thing, really. And for people who would know these names, perhaps you'd like to share them with us. Satya Sai Baba, Amaji, the Hugging Saint. I spent quite a lot of time with her. Nanagaru, he was a very well-known teacher. And when you met these people, or you were in their presence, how did that affect you? I would say each one I had a different experience with. So it wasn't like one experience. But what I would say, particularly with Sai Baba and with Nanagaru, is they just radiated this presence, which is very difficult to put into words. Although I didn't have a religious background, I always, for some reason, I had this great love for Jesus, but not for the church. <laughs> and I always imagined that that's what attracted people to Jesus. He didn't even need to speak. He just had a, a presence which was attractive and which just drew people to him, I imagine. So give me a sense of how this changed a young man from Scotland. I guess it gave me a sense of purpose, that I wanted to know what was going on inside these people and whether it was possible for me to have a similar experience. You know, because also I was listening to the words of these teachers as well as the presence, and they all spoke of the same thing. They all spoke of essentially that the mind is only a tiny part of who we are, you know, that there's a kind of vast consciousness that's also there, which is also part of who we are. And this is a place of that by nature is peaceful, is expansive, is free. So they make this distinction between being a peaceful person or being peace. So the difference between being a peaceful person and in peace, unpack that for me. Peace as an experience that comes and goes, you know, which has lack of peace as the opposite. So, you know, sometimes you can have an experience of peace. At other times, you can have an experience of agitation. So these are states that have a beginning and an end. They come and go. But there's an experience of peace that doesn't change. You could call it the container of all these passing experiences. So it's not peace as an experience. It's more peace as the unchanging aspect of who we are. Some people would use the word true self or higher self or God self to describe that. And we spend all our time rushing after peace and the, the transitory thing. We think, oh, when we're on holiday and we're in the right beach with the right drink in our hand, I will have peace and I can relax. Yeah. And you're saying that that's actually a bit of an illusion. And can you ever relax? <laughs> Even if you have the perfect set of circumstances, you know, you have your deck chair, your favorite drink, perfect climate. I would say that the mind is, in most people is still agitated. It's thinking about what am I going to have for lunch, probably. Yeah, if we're lucky. If we're lucky, it'll be thinking about mundane kind of things. If we're unlucky, it'll be thinking about anxiety, depression, worry, all these kind of things. These, these stories that we just run and run and run. So 
over your 20s and 30s, it feels to me like you were becoming a bit of a different person. Am I right in that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think like a lot of people in the early 20s, I was into kicks and highs and parties and, and stuff like that, which I think as well is just, and I, I mean, I'm talking about young people generally. I think we all have this intuitive sense that there's more to who we are than what we're experiencing. And we look for it in different ways. So people try getting high. And it's really a, an attempt to have a more expansive experience of life, if you like. You know, because this contracted experience of life is painful. We try to solve this, you know, through achievements, through success, through accumulating wealth or whatever. But it's really not ever going to work. And how were you supporting yourself during your 20s and 30s? I was a musician. I was very fortunate in that I was quite a good guitarist. <laughs> I would do six months in India, and then I would go up to somewhere like Japan and played in bands and busked sometimes as well. For a while, I used to send uh, stuff back from India and sell it in markets and stuff like this. So pretty much just anything I could do. But the idea was always, I want to get back there kind of soon, you know? And there was a moment, something that gave you a breakthrough that actually made you decide that you were going to be a teacher yourself. Tell me about that. I did a six-month meditation retreat in um, it was 2004. And I think it was just like an accumulation of having been in this kind of spiritual environment over years and years and years and years that something just popped, I would say. Just a recognition of my true self, of my true nature, spontaneously happened. I walked out the door one day and I was a different person. And it's very difficult to describe in words. But there was a feeling of having arrived. Maybe you're aware of this sense that it's never enough. There's this underlying not enoughness, which I think is, is in most people's lives. You know, no matter how successful, no matter how much you achieve, uh, not, you know, whatever relationship, whatever car, there's always this, okay, what now? What now? What? There's, there's an underlying restlessness. And that was gone. That was gone for the first time in my life. So you would describe this as having arrived? Yeah. It was the end of the search, would be another way to put it. And where were you at this time? I was in Canada, in the, the Rocky Mountains in Canada. We were doing about 12 hours meditation a day. Wow. So it was a very intense program. And before you went off there, you actually were quite a, and I'm going to use the inverted commas, successful person. You had two healing centers, you had booked out workshops, but something was wrong. What was wrong? Because that sounds pretty good to me. Mm. I mean, how esoteric do we want to go here? <laughs> as esoteric as you wish. There was a lot of ownership in my gifts and my talents before. There was a lot of feeling like I'm something special or I'm something great. Ego, in other words, the spiritual ego. There was a lot of enjoying people liking me. And what I recognized later was that, and I'm not saying any of that work was bad. I mean, I think it was good. I think I helped a lot of people. But there was a lot of identification 
there. Whereas now I would see it more that these things are all just given to us. You know, if we have gifts, we have talents. They're not like possessions that belong to us, if you like. So if they're not possessions that belong to us, what are they? They're expressions of the divine, expressions of the one consciousness, which every human has these. You know, some people are gifted at playing the piano and football players or whatever, but they're gifted to us. It's like we don't really necessarily do anything to have these. They're given with this body, you know, they come. So there you are up in the Rocky Mountains. You've arrived. What did you think of the Richard that walked into that monastery? He was gone. <laughs> he was gone. He just blew, went up in a puff of smoke. <laughs> it was an extraordinary experience, which you just can't put words to. I don't know if you did any psychedelics ever in your life. I did a couple of times when I was younger, you know, and it was like that. So it was almost like a psychedelic experience. Oh, totally, but totally natural, yeah. And what did you think of the old Richard that went up the mountainside, so to speak? Massive compassion and love. Oh. Huge, huge, huge love. And not just for Richard, but for everyone. Because Mm. it's not easy, this life, for anyone. You know, we all have our struggles, and we're all doing our best. So I think that was... Yeah, one thing that came was I just had a huge, it was like this huge compassion for the human condition, if you like. And were you in a relationship at this point? No. So your time was your own, and you decided to ordain as a monk. Was that a difficult decision? It was a very surprising decision. That was a complete, what's the word? It came out of left field. You know? I hadn't considered that ever. And yet, then I just found myself doing it. But one thing that arose from this shift in, in the experience was that it became clear that I also wasn't the author of my actions anymore. Until that point, I'd always been living my life from a place of trying to figure things out, you know. Should I do this? Should I do this? And, you know, arguments for, arguments against. And it felt like I moved into this place. It was like a flow that was just happening. And I wasn't even in there. A flow was coming. And so that was just one of the things that spontaneously came. I took these vows. And I was also very clear I wanted to teach what I had been learning as well about the mind. So what was your life like as a monk? What do you do? Probably more fun than a lot of people imagine. (laughs) You're having such a delicious inward experience that anything on the outside becomes quite pale in comparison. Did you sort of shave your head and wear specific garments and do a lot of meditation? Yeah, a lot lot of meditation. Was this a Hindu? Was this Buddhist? No, it was was from the Advaita tradition, which is called non-duality. So, yeah, Indian teaching, but not Hindu. And what does non-duality mean? Duality is our most people's normal experience of the world, if you like. Like the, the you and me talking, that's duality, you know? Yeah. But also with the divine, you know, this idea that there's something separate from ourselves 
you know, the non-duality idea says that there's just one thing going on here with the appearance of many things going on. So this is the idea that, in a sense, we're all this higher power. Absolutely, yeah. You and me are one. It's an illusion that I'm... I'm sitting here in Berlin and you're sitting, I don't actually know where you are, you're somewhere in the UK. Yeah, near Edinburgh. So it's an illusion. It is and it isn't. (laughs) Right, explain that for me. There is also, you know, I mean, I'm looking at you, I'm hearing you, but there is an experience of... Us being together, isn't there? Yeah, so there is that, but it's not the only game in town, if you like. I mean, I could put this in a lot of ways. Have you meditated? Or? Yes, I've meditated, and I've also trying to pursue this idea that we are all one. I can sort of just about get it for all humans and maybe certain animals, but I have trouble extending that out to all living things. And then I'm not quite certain if rocks and mountains are all part of the same thing or not, but I sort of can only go so far, so to speak, and it's very much a, an intellectual idea rather than a lived experience in my body sort of kind of idea. Yeah. So how would you describe it? What specifically? This whole concept of us all being one. You said you've got various ways of describing it, and let's have one of them. Okay, one of them might be like, say you have, the, the image that's often used in meditation is the image of clouds passing across the sky. I'm used to that idea. Yeah. So you're lying there on a summer's day looking at the sky, and you're just aware of the sky. And then a little cloud comes along, and it grabs your attention, and your attention's now on the cloud. But even although you're not aware of the sky anymore, but the sky's still there. It doesn't go anywhere. It's still there. And you get all different types of clouds. You get black clouds, white clouds, big clouds, small clouds, rain clouds. The sky, you could describe it as a kind of container of all these passing events. You know? And in the same way, there's a conscious an awareness. You know, this part of you that's aware of a happy thought is aware of a sad thought. It's kind of like the sky in that it's not touched by the content of what's passing through it. Yeah. So your happy thought, your sad thought, your whatever, your angry thought, your jealous thought, none of these touch the container, the essence. These things are all changing, constantly changing. The thoughts, the feelings, the emotions. are. There's no two moments in your life where you have the same thoughts, feelings, emotions, and yet the awareness is unchanged. That was there as a one-year-old Andrew, and it will be there as 90-year-old Andrew, that same awareness. And that is peace. It's not peace as a thought that comes and goes, but it's peace. It's the quality of peace. Now, if at this precise moment people are going, oh my God, what am I having to believe to have a peaceful mind? This is not necessary to quieten your mind and find calm. I mean, the main technique I use these days to help people is mindfulness. And I would say it's more of a science than anything. I mean, it requires absolutely no belief whatsoever. But I think it does require you to be a little bit more conscious than you normally are and actually look a little bit deeper into your mind. Yeah, it requires awareness. That's the first step. So let's actually go through these seven steps, because I think everybody can recognize the idea that their mind is a monkey mind that leaps 
from here to there. And sometimes that can be quite jolly because the monkey picks up nice things, but quite a lot of the time it's driving us completely and utterly round the bend. So the monkey mind, we're going to try and stop the overthinking. And we've got seven steps. I'm going to take you through your seven steps and perhaps you can explain why these are important. The first thing, if you want to stop overthinking, is to accept that your mind is busy. Now, why is that important? A lot of people think there's something wrong with them for having a busy mind. You know, a lot of people will slap a judgment onto that and say, my mind shouldn't be so busy. I have a problem. There's something wrong. One of the first things we teach in mindfulness is that everybody has a crazy, messed up mind. <laughs> it's, it's just part of the human condition. Everyone. And it's one of the things I loved about my mindfulness teacher. Is on the first day, she put her hand up and owned up to that and said, I'm crazy, I'm fallible, I'm imperfect, I'm going to make mistakes. And that's just the human condition. And even people who've spent half their life in monasteries somewhere and uh, have had a transformative experience, they still have a busy mind. Is Absolutely. that what you're saying? Yeah, the mind doesn't change necessarily. I belong to a meditation group that sort of has changing members and people often come along and say, oh, I'm terrible at meditating as if it was some kind of sport. It's not a sport and you can't be good or bad at it. Is, am I getting that right? Absolutely. This is, you know, probably the most common thing I hear from people. I can't meditate. I've tried it. It didn't work. And that's to misunderstand meditation. Because one of the key points of meditation is that we're not looking for any particular feeling or state. You know, we're just being with whatever our state is. So the first thing you do is you accept that your mind is busy. Step two is engaging with the idea that the mind is optional. Now, what do you mean by the mind is optional? I'd like to come to that one slightly later. Okay. If that's okay, if we can jump on to the next one. Yep. So the next one is see your thoughts, don't be your thoughts. Watch your thoughts from a distance. Yes. And this is where awareness comes in, you know. For most people, thinking is going on from the moment they wake up to the moment they go to bed again. There's just this constant stream of traffic in the mind. But there's no awareness that that is happening. So people are so lost in the stream of thought that there's not another part of them that's outside of that that's able to objectively see that. And what you discover pretty quickly is that you can also watch your thoughts. There's an awareness that is aware of the content of the mind. So that, that's really the first step, is to recognize that I can watch my mind. And that those thoughts are just passing thoughts. Yeah, they can be watched. Could I flow through these seven ones? Because I have a kind of natural flow of presenting them. So what have we got next? One of the main reasons that we suffer is not because of our thoughts. It's because of our relationship with our thoughts. Right, that sounds important. Explain that to me again. What we generally do with the mind is that we label. Some thoughts are desirable, some thoughts are undesirable, some are good, some are bad. And when I say thoughts, I also mean feelings and emotions as well. You know, anger arises immediately. There's this, that's bad, that's not good, there's something wrong with me, I need to fix this. And this is something that the Buddhists call second arrow. 
which is all this overlay that we put onto the original thought, feeling, or emotion. So say, for example, you have a sad thought that comes. Or say you wake up one morning and you're just feeling a bit down or something. What tends to happen in most people is that there is a judgment of that, a negative judgment. You know, we think, this isn't good. I don't like this. There's something wrong with me. I need to fix it. And all of that is what's called second arrow. So it's like pouring fuel onto the fire. What mindfulness suggests that we do is to become aware of this tendency to judge and to practice accepting whatever arises in our experience, you know, with an attitude of non judgmental acceptance. So I'm sad and. I'm not going to be sad forever and just don't judge that. You know, there's possibly a good reason for being sad and it just is. Is sad inherently good or bad? That's the question. Or is it the mind's label that makes it good or bad? Yeah, because you can have a sort of rather tender sadness as well as a really melancholy sadness. And maybe we need to mourn something. So that might be not particularly pleasant, but it might be necessary, that sadness. Yeah, but either way, it's the resistance that's the root cause of the suffering rather than the feeling itself. You know, if you just feel sadness in your body and there's no commentary saying that this is bad, this is wrong, it's not such a big deal. It's like a passing experience, if you like. Passing cloud in the sky, as you said. But something I have to add there, which is really important, because you could then say, well, doesn't that just turn me into a kind of zombie? You know, it sounds a bit clinical or a bit don't feel your feelings or something like that. In mindfulness, we often talk about the two wings of a bird. The first wing is awareness, so watching. The second wing is the attitude of love, compassion kindness, gentleness. And that's equally important. You know, not just to watch all this stuff like a kind of... Like it's a movie and you're not involved in it. Yeah, but bringing this qualities of compassion in there as well and developing that, particularly towards ourselves. Because I think the majority of people are quite self-critical and self-judgmental. I would say three quarters of the people that come to me are possibly their biggest issue is that they're just really hard on themselves. I would say 100% of the people who come and see me are incredibly hard on themselves. Yeah. And so it's important to recognize everyone has a messed up mind. There's nothing special about you in, in particular. Everyone, every human has these difficulties. It's part of the human condition. You know, I guess it's just a little shift in attitude that that helps. So what's the next thing we need to consider? Hmm. The next big one is recognizing the difference between thoughts and thinking. And this is a huge distinction. So what's the difference between thoughts and thinking? Would you like to do an experiment? Just take about 20 seconds or 30 seconds. Perfect. Okay, so just close your eyes for one moment. And like a cat watching a mouse hole, Watch to see what your next thought's going to be. And when the next thought arrives, you can open your eyes again. Okay. You were aware of a thought arising. Oh, yes. My question is, did you know in advance what that thought was going to be? No. No. And do you ever know in advance what your next thought's going to be? Never. 
sometimes I can get into a groove where you can sort of, you know, they sort of all belong together. But in general, even though they might all belong together in the same sort of movie, you don't exactly know what turn the movie is going to take. Yeah. And also, if you're consciously using the mind to figure out a mathematical problem or something, then you do know the thoughts follow each other, if you like. But even then, you don't know whether you're going to succeed. You don't know how you're going to actually get to the end of the maths puzzle, because there isn't only one way of getting to the end of a puzzle. So the next question would be, did you play any part in the arrival of that thought? Hmm, that's a difficult question. In some sense, it, it was a very sort of Andrew kind of worry, but did I conjure it up? No. Did you plan it? Did you? No, I didn't plan it. This, for me, was a huge game changer because you were asking me earlier what the earlier Richard was like. You know, Richard was very concerned about the kinds of thoughts that popped into his head. Like he would judge himself as being a bad person for having certain thoughts. He would think that, you know, there's something wrong with me for having that thought. And what I learned through all these years of meditation was that, and I'm just putting this out, uh, I'm, I'm not trying to present this as, I'd like this to be taken just as more of how I see it, that the mind is essentially our programming playing over and over and over. You know, ninety-five percent of the stuff that comes out of our head is this stuff, you know, from the past. It's our past conditioning playing itself over and over and over. And when I say it's not personal, that's what I mean. You know, it's a part of our conditioned self, if you like. And you're making a difference between the conditioned self and who we really are. Yes, I sometimes use the words conditioned self and unconditioned self. Unconditioned self would be who you were the moment you were born. You were just this pristine awareness, if you like, with no content. And then as you grew, then all this content was added. And then you began to identify with the content as being who you are. So we're going off track a bit here. Yep. What's our next thing? So recognizing that we have no control over the thoughts that appear in our mind, but if we choose to create stories and wallow in the stories, that's something we can choose to stop you know, through awareness, through noticing that, okay, the thought came and then it triggered this whole story. And that's something that we can train ourselves not to do, if you like. We can't ever stop the thoughts from appearing or the feelings or the emotions, but we can stop you know, turning them into thinking. I've often been told that as you are not your thoughts, the other alternative is don't take your thoughts personally. That's my number one article on my blog, You Are Not Your Thoughts. And it's very easy to get identified with our thoughts because, you know, we think this inner critic is truthful. We believe that it says something about who we are. And you are not your thoughts. That critical voice is not you. I often ask people to say, who is this critical voice? Because often it has your mother, your father, that school teacher, you know, your first boss. But there's all sorts of people that have added their contribution to it. And I think that helps a little bit to distance yourself from it. Say, so, you know, whose voice actually is it? Because sometimes my clients will be sitting there talking and then they'll suddenly say something that doesn't feel as if it comes from them. It actually feels like they are parroting something that comes from the past that actually isn't them. Yeah, 
I mean, so much of who we are comes from our cultural conditioning as well. You know, if you took a Chinese baby, an Indian baby, and a British baby, they would be pretty much exactly the same. But you take the three adults, and they're vastly different. (laughs) You know, our entire belief system is attached to our culture as well. Yeah. I mean, that's the topic of my book, Kick the Thinking Habit, recognizing that thinking is essentially a habit. And when I say thinking, what I mean is unproductive thinking. Of course, we need to think to live. We need to think. But a lot of our thinking is just unproductive. It's just the mind going round and round in circles, tormenting us, really. And that kind of thinking with awareness can stop. And it's a voice that is judging and it is ranking and it is driving us completely and utterly mad. Yeah. Yeah. What's the next thing that we need to think about? Believing your mind. Right. So believing what the mind is telling you. I'm a bad person. That's just a random example that popped into my head. I'm not good enough. I think we all know that one. <laughs> yeah. I shouldn't be the way I am. Believing that, you know, just buying it instead of what I recommend people do is to, you know, pick the opposite thought. I am enough, and to find evidence to support that. And you'll find most of the time, you very quickly, you can dispel these beliefs through actually examining them. I quite like that idea. So the minute you start thinking, I am not enough, you know, I messed up the time for this recording, I'm a stupid person, and then you replace it with, you know, I normally manage to turn up at the right time, I'm okay. <laughs> or I'm a stupid person. And I'm a great person. I'm all of it. I'm not one thing. (laughs) (laughs) One mistake didn't turn me into somebody who was entirely different. (laughs) It's funny when you think about it. That's the human condition. We mess up, we screw up, and sometimes we're wonderful and loving and caring and giving, and other times we're horrible and judgmental. And you know, it's about peace. Is about embracing all of it. And I think there's probably one more that we need to make up seven thoughts. The seventh one is kind of two wrapped into one. The the mind is only part of who you are. I would Mm. imagine that most people would see the mind as being the totality of who they are. Would would you agree with that? Yeah, I think that a lot of people divide themselves between uh, their body and their mind almost a little bit like, you know, they're a senator that is a human being with a, an animal attached to it sort of kind of thing. And I've been on this path for a while, so I've stopped trying to divide between the mind and the body and to think that my mind is all that I am. So I'm sort of making a little bit of progress, but I'm still quite attached to my mind, to be perfectly honest. Yeah. And every, I mean, every spiritual teaching says the same thing. It's thoughts are not the problem. It's the identification with thoughts. That's the problem. And you said there were two halves to this final piece. Being present. That's really the key. Living in the moment. Yeah. I mean, the good news from the point of view of solutions, if you like, is that the mind can only be in one place at a time. No, it does its best to be in the past and the future as well. I know. <laughs> I know. 
it's like a puppy that's just constantly straying. You know, you have to just keep pulling the lead back. <laughs> I always think monkey mind is a bit of a disservice to monkeys, actually. I've observed monkeys a lot in India, and they actually are quiet sometimes. <laughs> they just sit quietly in moments, but I've never known the mind to do that. Yes, I mean, because even puppies sleep eventually, don't they? <laughs> Yeah. So being present is the key, really, to experiencing more peace. So take us through these seven things again. <laughs> Just the headlines, don't worry, we don't have to have the full thing. Okay, so don't expect the mind not to be crazy. So accept that the mind is going to be crazy. What I've written in my book is that it's expecting the mind not to be crazy is like expecting grass not to be green. <laughs> <laughs> expecting the weather in Scotland to be like Mallorca or something. You know? It's just a fact. The mind's a mess. The mind's crazy. And that's not a problem. It's how we're made, if you like. Uh, second, I would say there's a part of ourself which is able to step back and objectively watch the mind. If you're completely caught up in the mind, you know, all these other things just happen automatically, like judgment believing your thoughts, all of these things. But when you step back, that gives you the ability to objectively look at what's going on. And so then we can do things like question our thoughts. Is this true or not? There's a wonderful question that I use a lot in my coaching is, do you know for 100% certain this is true? And people will always say, no, I don't. And how do you feel if you don't believe this thought? How do you feel if you do believe it? How do you feel if you don't believe it? It's not the thought that's the problem, it's the believing or the not believing. Yeah. So, to the best of your ability, just allowing thoughts to come and go without resistance. Don't take thoughts personally. Recognize that the thoughts that appear in your awareness are not chosen by you, they're not created by you. It's part of the human condition, if you like. There's this constant, in mindfulness, we use the word undercurrent. There's a continuous undercurrent of thoughts, feelings, emotions, impressions that's permanently running through our head. We stand in the middle of the river like a thought traffic policeman trying to control the flow. I like this, I don't like this. Whereas you can learn to sit on the bank as a witness. Recognizing the difference between thoughts and thinking. There's nothing you can do about thoughts arising, but whether you choose to Wallowing them and play them over and over and over, if there's a choice, it's something that you do have control over. And the keys really is to be more present, which I guess another word would be more aware. It's just the same thing, really. And in a second, we're going to look at a particular problem that's been written in and let's see how this approach might change that. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. Now, one of the advantages of joining our supporters club is you can write in a letter to us, and this is the letter I've got this time round. I have a new supervisor at work, and it seems that nothing I can do is right. It started with a stupid mistake when I double-booked some important clients. There was no fallout and I managed to sort it out, but it seems that my supervisor is double-checking what I'm doing. The more I feel watched, the worse it gets, and I'll make a typo in a report or something minor happens. 
Should I apologise or am I just drawing attention to the problem? I keep worrying that if there needs to be a cull, that I'll be top of the list and all my good appraisals under the old regime will count for nothing. It's the worst time to look for another job and our family finances are already overextended. My best friend at work says he's a bit of an awkward bugger and not to let him get to me, but she doesn't have to report to him. It's starting to impact on my sleep and I dread Monday mornings. So, Richard, I think this is quite an active mind here, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. But then we have to be compassionate because we all have active minds. Anything that you can say that might help with this problem with the supervisor? One thing that jumps to mind straight away is these assumptions. Nothing I do is right. He's double-checking everything I do. She said, you know, I'm scared of losing my job. All of this, I would say, to question these beliefs, you know, rather than just buying them hook, line, and sinker. Is that the expression? To say, okay, stop. Do I actually know this for sure, you know, that my boss is double-checking everything I do? Is this a fact or is this an assumption? Nothing I do is right. You know, often we, we have all these ideas about what other people are thinking. And sometimes, you know, you discover later that they're like, oh, God, I wasn't thinking any of that, you know, that we make up stuff. So that would be one thing. I would question these ideas. And then this catastrophizing, this tendency to imagine this bleak future, if you like. There needs to be a cull. I'll be top of the list. I mean, you could also put that in the assumption category. Does she know? This is the worst time to look for another job. So in this person's mind, they're already in this future worst-case scenario. Yeah. That is a habit. You know, Maybe if the thought arises, I'm scared I'm going to lose my job, that's not something that we have control over. That thought will just appear. But whether we then turn that into you know, this futuristic... <laughs> catastrophe movie in our head is something that we could learn not to go there through awareness through seeing it see okay so i have this tendency that i always do this and you know instead i'm gonna pull my attention back and be you know i'm gonna focus on my breath for example or i'm going to put my attention on something that brings me into the present moment and that could just be as simple as being conscious of your weight on the chair where you're sitting yeah. or your feet on the floor yeah. so that you take your attention from your mind into something physical you can feel in your body. Mm -hmm. And you'll find, you know, if the, if the habit is strong, that two seconds later your mind will be off again <laughs> and then you have to come back again to the moment and then it will be off again. So it's often described as like a muscle. It's like training a new muscle. The muscle of following our thoughts and believing our thoughts and judging our thoughts is very strongly developed in most people. And the aim here is to strengthen another muscle, which is the one that questions the thoughts, that doesn't judge the thoughts. And I would suggest that authority figures normally we tend to put them into the same category as our parents who are the original authority figures. So, you know, my question would be, did either of your parents make you feel that nothing you could do was wrong? Did you feel that they were watching and judging? Because sometimes we take the old relationship and we project it onto a new person we don't know. That 
could be something that's going on here. There's a wonderful idea that I sometimes get my clients to think, which is your boss is not your mother or your father or Uncle James or whoever else, but just that sense your boss is not your mother and that they're not going to respond to you in the same way. Now, you might expect them to behave in that way, but if you can actually put some distance between those two things, it helps you not to get so caught up in what might be an old script. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which kind of ties into what we were saying before, that the mind is essentially just old programming that's just running over and over. And some of these programs are out of date and actually need reworking, don't they? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And if you believe the Eastern view, they've been going for many, many lifetimes. I was considering this before we spoke, but I was looking for this quote, and it's from Mark Twain. Mm-hmm. He said, I've suffered so many troubles in my life, most of which never happened. <laughs> and that's beautiful. It just sums it up. We have all these catastrophe ideas in our head, but really there's no reality to them. Yeah, I'm suddenly at this moment thinking way back to when I was in my early 20s and I had a new boss at work, or it wasn't entirely my boss, but was actually really responsible for me. And I always thought that he thought I was a bit of a plonker sort of kind of thing. And many years later, our paths crossed again and we became friends. And it became really clear that all of that stuff that I was thinking was all in my own head. Mm -hmm. And this guy actually thought I was okay. In fact, you know, we remain friends until he died. But yet, you know, I had this whole script going about how nothing I could do was right. And it was all in my own head. And actually, we became friends. It's sort of weird. And how many aspects of our life is that true? You know, the way that we see reality is just based on this old, old stories and old programming, which may or may not be true. You know, in my experience, most of it isn't true. So thank you for being a witness today on The Meaningful Life. And so I have to turn to you and ask, what makes your life meaningful? I would answer this on two levels. One level would be on, I don't know how to say this, being the best person I can be. So one level is being the best person you can be. And what's the other level? What I was going to say is that most of us, and this is something that I learned from the Indian teaching was that there's four stages of human evolution, if you like. They call it the four purushartas. And the first two are survival and pleasure-seeking. And then the third one is what they call dharma, which means doing the right thing, regardless of whether it's what you would like to do or not. So living from a place of integrity, honesty, truth. And this is also, in my experience, what makes me feel happy. You know, if I'm not messing anyone around or screwing anyone up or trying to get what I can get for me out of situations. So practicing these things to the best of my ability. Well, thank you very much for being a witness today on The Meaningful Life. This is where our conversation ends for most people. But what we're going to do in a moment is we're going to move into our supporters circle. If you want to find out how to become part of that, here's some information. 
You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Collick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.